You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. So we're in a series called Hope for Strugglers, and we're looking through 1 Peter, what the book of 1 Peter is about. And one of the reasons we do this is we kind of sometimes just go through a book, is it makes us talk about stuff we would normally avoid, and so we just like to walk through this. And so thinking about 1 Peter, it's, it's, it's about a group of new Christians that were living in a secular world, and they're trying to figure out how to live for Christ in the midst of a very secular culture. And they had no models. They had nobody going before them. They, had, they weren't second-generation Christians. They were the first Christians. And so they didn't know how to do this. And so Peter writes them and gives them some, some instructions. And uh, I remember, you know, one time ordering a, you know, a, a desk. I don't know if it's from Ikea or whatever. And have you ever ordered something and you just thought you could put it together without looking at the directions? Have you ever had that experience like, I can do this. I can do this. You look at the picture, you try to go into it, and before you know it, you're in a mess. And I was trying to put this desk together, and the more I tried, the worse it got. And I finally had to get the instructions out and to see how this thing worked and how to put it together. And after about six or seven weeks, I got the thing together, you know? And I think this is what First Peter's about. It's about what are the instructions? How do we live this out in a secular world. We are living in a secular culture. That is, you know, much, much more than ever before we have a secular world that we're functioning in as Christians. And uh, this is much more like Europe than it was, you know, 10 years ago. This is a different world that America is living in now. So how do we live out the Christian life? So today, we're going to be looking at a controversial passage, and I'm not going to be able to get everything covered today. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit uh, trail today, uh, and then probably the next time I speak on this, we'll, we'll finish this out. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 talks about how do you make a marriage work in a secular culture? How do you make a marriage work in a secular culture? And how does that work? And, uh, you know, what do you do if your spouse is not a Christian and you're a Christian? So it's dealing with these, like, things. And these, these people had no idea what are you supposed to do. So Peter writes them about, you know, how to make the marriage thing work. And so uh, we'll, we're going to parse a lot of this out as we go through it the next couple times we talk about this. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, here's what it says. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands... So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, but by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and the reverence of your life, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women in the past who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him, Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So there's a lot of red flags in this text, and we'll have to talk about those as we go through them. But what I want to talk about today is the model of marriage that Peter is pointing to. 
He's pointing to a marriage model that is in the Bible the only marriage model. And that is the heterosexual marriage model. And in this text, what we see is we're talking about a man being married to a woman and they produce children and they have a family. Now, when you think about what does the Bible say about uh, marriage, how does it present the marriage pattern and what is the marriage model like, the Bible always exclusively, 100% of the time, always presents a heterosexual marriage model. Never ever does Peter say, well, listen, here's one model. And if you have a different, you know, pattern, a model, that's the model. This is how you act, act in that model. But there is a consistency in the scripture about how God defines marriage. Marriage is very explicitly clear throughout all of the New Testament in a heterosexual manner. Now, it wasn't in the world that Peter lived in and these new uh, Christians lived in, it wasn't like that these other relationships, type of relationships, same-sex relationships and all that, it wasn't that they had not been invented yet. Sometimes we think that, that, you know, they lived in sort of this ancient puritanical culture that everybody, you know, husband and wife and all that, they, we just think that they lived in that world. And somewhere in history, we got the same sex, the homosexual thing that all emerged later. That is definitely not true. I have, and I'm not promoting or boasting about my education, but I have a, a, a master's degree in ancient Roman history. And I know that those Roman emperors like uh, Tiberius and Caligula, they were seriously perverted people. And if you look in the uh, Roman Empire, there was lots of same-sex things going on. There was lots of different diversions that were, uh, diversions of perversions that were going on. And so when we talk about these early Christians, as Peter addresses them and talks to them about what does marriage look like, he offers them one model, and that's the heterosexual model. And uh, we find that exclusively. You cannot go anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament, and you cannot find any other model or pattern of marriage. It does not exist so at least, regardless of what your view is on these type of things, you have to take the data into consideration. When you look at the Bible and you look at what Scripture says, you have to take the data that says that in the Bible at least, there is no such thing as another model of marriage other than a man being married to a woman. That is the only model. To, it's sort of like, you know, trying to find another model in Scripture. It's like to, trying to find an imaginary black cat in a black room. It does not exist. So, when you think about what do I believe as a Christian, and this is a big debate going on in churches all across America and churches all across our community right now, are trying to figure out what is legitimate in terms of romantic relationships, what's legitimate in terms of marriage models, what is legitimate. If you remember eHarmony, uh, you know, is a famous uh, dating website. It started in the 90s, I remember when it started. It was started by a guy, um, uh, a Christian counselor, uh, William Clark, uh, I forgot his last name. Uh, he, he, was, he was the counselor, he was a Christian counselor that started uh, eHarmony. eHarmony was a heterosexual 
organization that brought couples together, people together to find happiness that lasts forever. And eHarmony was sued because they weren't featuring other type of relationships. And they lost, uh, so they accommodated, and in their accommodation, they had this another model where they allowed same-sex marriage people, or people looking for lifelong love to, to have another app to go to. And they lost 350,000 members out of principle out of that. And eHarmony since then has made this massive shift toward, you know, equality in all types of relationships. So when I talk about, when I look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and I look at this marriage model, when I read this text, there's so many things in this text that we got to talk about. But the first thing that struck me is that it was, a, it was absolutely explicitly clear that the only model that Peter considered as legitimate was a heterosexual model. So I think that's something that we have to think about. When you take all of the Bible in its fullness and you look at it, what does the Bible say about that? And there's sometimes people are saying, well, you know, maybe it says this, maybe it says that. I recently had a conversation with a a pastor that, that I used to work with and loved him dearly. And he came out on, was on Facebook with some crazy stuff. And so I text him individually and I said, hey, brother, I love you and all that. Had a conversation with him. And he was trying to convince me that there's some ambiguity in the Bible about what looks like a legitimate, authentic, biblical marriage. And there is no ambiguity We have to come into the text wanting to see something that's not there, putting that in the text that doesn't exist. But when you pull out the text, what's really there, we are talking about a one model issue here. So when you think about that, that's important for us to remember. Now, it's sometimes said, and I have to confess in my ignorance, there was a time when I said, well, you know, I don't know that Jesus ever commented on homosexuality. I don't know that he ever did. And I was trying to think about that. And then the more I looked at the, looked at the ministry of Jesus, I realized that I was absolutely wrong. Because Jesus, you know, did comment on this, but you, it's easy to miss it. Here's how Jesus commented on uh, what marriage is supposed to look like. So again, to kind of recap, we have in the Bible, we have one specific pattern, one specific model of marriage, and that is a heterosexual model. Heterosexual model is the only model legitimately found in Scripture. Then here's what Jesus said. Uh, he was asked about, about divorce. And in Matthew 19, uh, we had this conversation Jesus has with the people about divorce. And the conversation is, can you divorce your wife for any reason? And there was two schools of thought in that day. There was uh, two rabbis, Shammai and Hillel. And uh, Shammai said, the only way you can divorce your wife as if she's been unfaithful to you. Uh, If she has committed uh, adultery, then you can divorce your spouse. Then there was this other guy, Hillel, who said, listen, if she snores at night, you can bail on her. If she burns the toast, if she is, you know, a terrible cook, if, you, if she gains weight and you don't like her, you can divorce her for any reason. And so Jesus has asked the question, can you divorce your, your, your wife for any reason? And so Jesus answers the question. Here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus did not duck the issue. He took a position on the issue. I have a lot of respect for people that will take a position on a controversial issue. 
We are living in an age of cowardice where leaders and people and Christians are afraid to take a position on anything. And let me tell you something. You can take a position in love. You don't have to be objectable. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be mean, but you can take a position. And it's important that people will take a position on something. It's an important thing. Here's what it says. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 6. six, six some Pharisees came to him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So what he's asking is, are you taking the Shammai position uh, or the Hillel position? And here's what Jesus said. Haven't you read, he replied, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There it is right there in front of us, and, and it's easy to overlook that. He's commenting on divorce, but Jesus endorses a heterosexual model of marriage. In the beginning, God made them male and female, and for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus himself gives the endorsement of a heterosexual marriage. Listen, Jesus' words carry a lot of weight with me. And I know they do with you as well. I love what Andy Stanley says. You know, anybody that can predict their own death and resurrection, anybody that can do that, we go along with pretty much anything he says. <laughs> and notice what he says. Jesus says, in the beginning, God made them male and female. There's a category. You are in a category. You're either a male or a female. In the state of Delaware right now, if you die and you're taken to the funeral home, the state of Delaware has a form that, you have to, that the funeral directors have to fill out about what category you are in. What are you? And there's 14 different categories in that form of what you could be. Funeral director recently was complaining to one of our pastors, says, I don't even know what some of these things are. Now, I don't want to be objectable, but maybe I can say what you're thinking. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. You're not crazy. If you believe that God made them male or female and that there's not 14 different categories, I believe that there, God made us to be either male or female. And that's what Jesus said. Haven't you read God made them male and female? So Jesus endorses a heterosexual marriage model. Peter said when he talked about how this model works, there's only one model he offered. He didn't offer multiple models. He offered one model. And then we have the, the early church. When the church was choosing leaders, and this happens to be one of the debates within many of the mainline denominations, even in our community, about who can be ordained into ministry. Can a person that is gay be ordained into ministry? Can this person be ordained into ministry? What is the model for ministry uh, ordination? That's a big thing. Because here's the thing about ordination. Here's the thing about church leadership. Church leadership is to be the model for what the church is to follow. So when you think about what God requires of the leaders in the church, that is to be the pattern or the model that the church is to emulate. So here's the, here's the, here's the pattern. 
First Timothy chapter three, verse one, uh, this is the new living translation it says, therefore, it's a trustworthy saying, if someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. And then here's what it says. I'll read it in the NIV now. First Timothy chapter one, I think the first couple of verses, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer, that's a pastor or a bishop. It's the word uh, episkopos in the Greek. The, the word pastor, by the way, I like the word. People call me pastor, you know, my initials are PD, you know, everybody calls me Pastor Danny, I'm PD, and I love the word pastor, but pastor is, is not a very frequently used word in the New Testament. It's only used once or twice. The most frequently word, used word is elder. So when you think, for the instance, the Methodist church has elders that they ordain in the church, that's the, when you hear the guy in the pulpit in the Methodist church, that's the elder of the church. That's their, their model, their, press, their model. And here's what it says. If, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer, elder, pastor, whatever, desires a noble task, that's a good thing. Now, here's the first qualification. Now, an overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. Faithful to his wife. So, when we look at the biblical uh, model of what is required of a leader in the church, what is required for ordination, what is required for someone to be ordained in the ministry, the first qualification is that they were to be the husband of one wife. This is absolutely uh, explicitly clear. It's not hinted at. It's absolutely clear. And later in this text in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3 uh, through 1 through 13, husband of one wife and his children, his children are to be above reproach and all of that. So husband and wife, husband and wife, the model for marriage for ordination is, is, is a heterosexual model. And then they produce children. And a same-sex couple obviously cannot produce children biologically. So then you got, then you got a deacon, same thing, verse 12. And then you've got in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. So when you talk about what does the Bible talk about in terms of what is the model, what is the pattern, what is the template that is supposed to be the norm for the church, what's supposed to be the norm for leaders in the church, it's a heterosexual model. So that's important for us to see. So it is explicit. Then here's something that's important. So what does that mean for you and I? What did it mean for Peter's congregation in the ancient world when they were surrounded by the Roman Empire and sexual perversion? What were they supposed to do? Were they supposed to, like, go on the war path against people out in the world because they had sexual perversion in the world and because they had homosexuality and same-sex marriage? Were they to, you know, have placards? Were they trying to change society? Were they trying to be at war with everybody out there? That wasn't, that wasn't the mission, and it's not our mission. Our mission isn't to go on a war path trying to change secular culture around us because that is a futile attempt because we live in a secular culture. That is where we live. We didn't live there, live here 50 years ago. But this is our world now. And we need to think wisely about it. And your mission is not to start a fight with every 
gay person in your workplace. It's not to carry placard signs and, and make a big stink and to be known that you just like are against all that. We are to model the biblical model in a culture that it's gone away from the biblical model. That's what we're called to do. And when we get caught up in all these other, like, we're going to change everything, and we're going to go to Washington, we're going to go to Dover, we're going to change everything. It's good time. There's times to, to speak up for things. But let me tell you something. The horse is out of the barn. And we have to learn how to live in the world that we live in. And that was the world that Peter's followers lived in. They lived in a very perverted world. Here's what Paul says. Now, this is one of the most important verses when we think about something like this. Paul said, he, lived, he, he wrote a letter to the church of Corinth. Corinth was a promiscuous Las Vegas, anything goes town. And so, this group of Christians are living in the most sector, the most perverted. There were adult, you know, strip places everywhere. There were prostitutes. There were homosexuality. There was perversion. It was a city of perversion. And the church was right in the middle of that. And how did Paul counsel his church to live in that world? Here's what he says. He says in verse uh, 9 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you my, in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or, or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. He's saying, when I was writing to you to put heat on somebody that's living immoral, I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about one of your brothers or sisters in the church that's starting to go awry, that you like hold them accountable and say, hey, listen, what are you doing? That's what he's saying. It's what he says. Look at this. He said, uh, verse 11 uh, oh, well, let me just read verse 10 again. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy, swindlers and idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an adulterer or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler, not even eat with such people. Verse 12, what business is it of mine? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel that wicked person from among you. What business is it mine to judge those people on the outside? What business is it of ours to judge people on the outside that don't know Christ? What are we expecting them to do? The unredeemed mind will become more and more perverted. And so it's, it's a fool's errand to say, listen, I'm going to go into my neighborhood. and I'm going to change the way people think out there. We model what Jesus has done in us. We live in a world, a secular world. We model a life transformed by Jesus. We model heterosexual marriage. We model sexual purity in the world. And that is our, our card to play. And that's what God's called us to do. And Paul said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? What business is it of mine? I don't feel compelled to straighten everybody out at the athletic club that I work with. I live for Christ in that culture. And I'm telling you what, the people I'm surrounded with, and I know more so for you where you guys are living and where you're working, the stuff you're hearing, the stuff you're seeing, 
It's not your job to straighten out all those people. It's your job to live for Jesus and to show how Jesus can transform a life. And when they see your transformed life, they're going to say, wow, man, there's something missing in my life. That's how we change this world. Not with a sledgehammer, but with a portrait of who God has made us to be in Christ. Now, here's the thing. The church is like a boat in the sea. You got a boat in the sea, and the boat is in the sea, and we're in, we're in the world, and we're surrounded by secularism. We're, we're surrounded with a worldview that doesn't match what we believe as we are discipled in Christ. We're a boat in a world, and the water is out there, and we're the boat. The problem is, is when water gets in the boat, and the boat begins to sink, and that's what's happened in the mainline denominations, many churches even in our community. They ceased to be the boat in the sea, and the sea got in the boat. How the world thinks is how the church begins to think. What the world believes is what the church begins to think. What eHarmony used to believe the world hijacked eHarmony from a Christian psychologist and made it begin to think like everybody in the world. Listen, we're in the world, but we're not of this world. And if we're going to live for Christ in this incredible world that we live in with all the opportunities that are before us, we have to remember that we are in this world, but we're not of this world. And I have no compulsion to be at war with anybody out there because I don't expect the duck to bark. <laughs> I don't expect a duck to bark. I don't expect unredeemed sector people to think like I think because they're lost. Their minds are unredeemed. The Bible says a man that does not have the Spirit of God cannot comprehend the things of God. So you're, the onus on us, the onus on you is not to be at war with culture, but to be planted in culture as the church, to be like Paul and Corinth and how he planted a church that loved Jesus and he wrote to that church about how to live holy in a sector world, how they should be living for Jesus and how they should be filled with love and how they shouldn't give themselves over to immorality. So that is our mission. So... Say this with me. Our mission is to model Jesus not to be at war with a culture. And you know why? Do you know why I'm not going to war against the culture? Do you want to know why? You want to jump on a bandwagon and, you know, get your placard signs and, and paint your face with war paint and go to war against all the sexual perversions and all the bad things. I'll tell you why I don't go to war. That's an unwinnable war. It's a waste of energy. Your energy needs to be developed on, on becoming a godly person that lives in a sector world so that the world, when they see you, they take a double take. 
When the world sees your marriage, you've been married 50 years and you're still loving each other and getting along. How many have been married? You've been married 20 years. Anybody been married over 20, 25 years? Just raise your hand. You've been married a long time. And you know, you, you know, you just, you go through stuff, you know, like the guy married to his wife, they were in the nursing home together. They, she couldn't hear, he couldn't hear. And he said to her, I'm proud of you. And she said, huh? He said, I'm proud of you. She said, yeah, I'm getting tired of you too, is what she said, you know. <laughs> How am I getting tired of each other every once in a while, you know? <laughs> not war, not war, not war. But we just, we just, we live it and we own it. Don't dance around things when they say what you think about. What do you believe about gay people? Well, I tell you what, I believe about gay people. God loves gay people. God loves them with all his heart. He, Jesus died for them. What do you believe it's wrong? Yes, I believe the biblical model says it's wrong. Listen, you know, you got your view on that. I, this is what I believe in the Bible. I know what I believe. We need to quit apologizing for the Bible and the reason that these churches are in trouble. It's because they keep apologizing for the Bible like it's some senile uncle that keeps uttering things that they're ashamed of. Listen, I believe that the Bible is the key that how, how is Jesus going to be Lord in my life other than when, me, when I read Scripture and the Holy Spirit shows me in Scripture how I need to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Quit apologizing for the Bible. Listen, we're going to be relevant, contemporary here, but we're not going to apologize for the Bible because the Bible, the truth will set you free. And if you believe there's 14 different categories for people, listen, I love you. I love you. Let me tell me more. That's interesting. But I don't believe that. I'm not going to believe that. You can't convince me of that. We're afraid to say in our heads at least, that's nonsense. Why are we so afraid? Why are we so afraid to own our own values? Why are we so afraid? And we, we, maybe it's we're afraid we're going to get in an argument. We don't have to be in an argument with anybody, but we need to own our own values. If we don't own our own values, how are our kids going to own their values? How are our grandkids going to own their values? We need to own our values and just be comfortable that we're not crazy. We're not crazy. They're crazy. <laughs> you know, not knowing Jesus will make you crazy. I've never said this in my life, and I probably shouldn't say it now. Just say it out loud with me. I'm not crazy. Just say it right now. I'm not crazy. Every once in a while, you have to tell yourself, I look in the mirror, and I watch TV, and I watch movies, and I listen to everybody, and I go to school. I have to tell myself, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. Paul said, what business is it of mine? What business is it of mine to judge the world outside the church? It's not my business. It's not my business. I don't have to be at war. The other thing we need to remember about this issue of, you know, heterosexual marriage and all that, that that's the model. And this is why many churches in America have imploded, imploded numerically. Here's the, here's the irony. The more you compromise, the more you lose people. The more you compromise, the less impactful you are. We need to speak the truth in love. Here's the thing. 
Here's the big argument about this issue, and this is an issue that, that comes into your head, comes into my head, comes into all our heads, is that we are just supposed to love people that are, uh, you know, have crazy views and all that. Just love people and just accept people and love people. Love, 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 love. We are to love people. But love and truth must be linked together. Why have churches gone wrong in America? It's because they've emphasized, they've been high on love and low on truth. We're supposed to be high on love and high on truth simultaneously. Now, if you're high on truth and low on love, you're going to be obnoxious and, you know, hard to get along with. But if you're high on love and low on truth, you're going to drift into error and confusion. Here's a couple scriptures. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not delight in evil. Love does not say, I love you. I think your evil's great. Love doesn't delight in evil. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So we see love and truth coming together. Ephesians 4, 15, instead speaking the truth in love. Say it with me. Instead, Instead. speaking the truth in love. This is a sucker hole for the church because we think that God is just love. That is heresy. God is righteous. God is holy. He's pure. In him, there is no darkness. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. When John saw in the book of Revelation, saw the glory of Jesus and his face shone with righteousness, John fell at his feet like a dead man because he was in the presence of holiness and righteousness. Amen. All our songs, and I'm not criticizing, I love a lot of our songs, but all our songs are about how much God loves us and how he loves us and loves us and loves us and he does love us. When's, when's the last time we sang a song in the modern church? And I'm not condemning our worship here. I'm just saying universally in the church, we sing songs about God like he's our Valentine. Instead of singing songs about the greatness of God, the holiness of God, the majesty, the majesty of God, the righteous and holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy God. It's like we're the center of the universe. God is holy and righteous. Truth can never be sacrificed on the altar of love. And it sounds good, and it is American, that we just love everybody, and we do love everybody, but just because we love you and just because God loves you doesn't mean we're going to roll over and play dead. We have to teach the scriptures because the scriptures teach us how we're supposed to live and how we can have our best life. Speak the truth in love. Here's what Tim Keller said. He said, truth without love is harshness. Truth without love is harshness. And I've been around people that just had truth, no love. 
Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. And so love without truth just keeps us in a perpetual denial. And we have to think about that differently. Here's what 3 John 1.4 says. John, who was the apostle of love, John said, I have no greater joy to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no, no greater joy to hear that my children are walking in truth. We must now embrace truth and love together. We must be high on truth. We must be high on love. And we must bring those two things together in the church. It's got to be something that we do and something that we embrace. Finally, Paul said, I'm almost out of town at time. I am out of time, actually. Second Timothy 4.2, Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. What does it mean to preach the word in season and out of season? It means preach the word when people want to hear that. And preach the word when people don't want to hear that. In our pulpits and the pastors in our churches must be willing to preach the word with a broken heart, loving Jesus, loving people, but never holding the truth back from people that need to hear the truth. I, I was at... Uh, I was at tennis the other day, and I was leaving the tennis court and after horrible defeat. But anyhow, well, uh, that's a different thing. And a lady came in with another, another ladies group. I was playing singles with my buddy. And she, she was telling us, she said she just found out she had, she had melanoma on her elbow. She went to the, the uh, dermatologist, and she was real upset. She said, they got to dig out around my... And she was just, you know, really worried about it. And you could tell this has really rattled her. And I was thinking about, what if that doctor had said, you know, he saw the melanoma. He saw it. But he didn't want to upset her. Didn't want to upset her. He said, yeah, I love you. You're doing, you look great. I like your shoes. It's wonderful. <laughs> That's not love. That's cowardice. He needed to look her in the eye and say, listen, you've got a problem. There's something in your life, something on your body trying to destroy you. And you better deal with it. And we need a new visitation of, of pastors that will do that. And we'll, we'll do that. And I'll close with a, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And I think a very applicable story to where we are today. And it's found in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah was prophesying to Jehoiakim, who was a king in Judah, 609 to 598 B.C. And Jeremiah was hearing the Lord, and he was hearing the Lord about things that people didn't want to hear. So Jeremiah gave his prophecy. He had this guy named Baruch that wrote it down for him. And then Jeremiah was exiled. He couldn't see the king because he was so controversial. So Baruch goes to the temple and he starts reading Jeremiah's prophecy and everybody's listening. And then the king's people heard about it. And they took Baruch, Jeremiah's servant, 
to the king, Jehoiakim, and they start reading what Jeremiah said to the people, or to the king and his council. The king, it's wintertime, and the king is sitting in front of a wood stove, a fire pot, and every time they read something that the king didn't like, he took a scribe's knife or a pen knife, and he cut it out, and he threw it in the fire. They'd read a little longer. He didn't like what was read. He cut it out, threw it in the fire, until, until he had cut up and burned the entire scroll of Jeremiah. When we start compromising on one part of the word that's very clear and very explicit, it's not long before we drift to a place where we completely reject the word in its entirety. And he didn't like, the king Jehoiakim didn't like what was being read. So he cut it out. And the Bible says that Jeremiah went back and he, he, add, he, he wrote everything back down. Baruch copied everything that Jeremiah had said and more and restored the word. This is a season. This is a season for Fenwick Island. Just listen to me right now. Season for Millsboro. Season for Rehoboth. Season for Bayshore. When we're in this community and God has called us to honor his word, to elevate truth and love together, to model in a secular world what it means to make Jesus Lord of your life in every area. Would you lift your hands with me right now? Let's let the Holy Spirit move on us. This is a season, a special season where God's moving, special season that you may find yourself out of step with the world around you. That's okay. If you're out of step, it may be you're in step with the Lord. Father God, we thank you that you're going to raise up in our community and our churches, Bayshore, community churches everywhere, that you're going to raise up people with hearts full of love, but people that love the truth, people that make Christ Lord of their life, people that follow the cues of the Word of God instead of the culture around us. May we model in our community what we're called to be. And you commissioned us in this community. You've raised up Bayshore in this community not to compromise, but to speak the word and love the word and honor Jesus. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore Podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.